Welcome to this episode of Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. And for this episode, we are joined by Kayla McLaughlin, who I love. She uh, is one of my clients. And basically, she is an HIV extraordinaire researcher. And in her title, exactly, I'm going to let her take away in a second. But basically, in this episode, we're going to be asking, what is the deal with HIV research today? Where did she come from? What's the deal? What's the scoop? And we're going to be getting all of it. So welcome, Kayla. Thank you. Um, so what what is your official title for the people? Um, so I'm a physician assistant, and I work at the Los Angeles LGBT Center, and I am the PrEP clinician, which is the pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV. Prior to that, I was on the PrEP research study, so I was a research clinician there studying for about nine months. Um, and then I also do the transgender medicine, so I do hormone replacement for transgendered patients. Well, that's fascinating. Yeah, it's fun. So, you know, I'm really struck by, I'm, you know, a 29-year-old gay man, and I'm always really struck by, when I, when I talk about PrEP, I'm always struck by how many people don't know what it is, both gay and straight, young and old. Like, people are genuinely shocked about, like, oh, what is that? So, for those of us that have been living under a rock, myself not mm-hmm. included, uh, tell the people what PrEP really is. Um, yeah, so every time that I'm talking about PrEP to somebody, they're, like, already in my exam room. So I'm always, like, interested in how people find out about it for the first time, and they always hear through friends. But I would have to say that I think that, like, men who have sex with men in particular are super educated about um, sexual health in general. Like, whenever I'm talking to heterosexual people, they're the ones that I feel like have never heard of PrEP. But PrEP is basically pre-exposure prophylaxis. So it's a drug that you take every single day, regardless of whether or not you plan on having sex. Um, that way you have enough in your plasma whenever you do encounter HIV that you will not be infected. So like back in the day, whenever like a nurse was drawing blood from an HIV positive patient, she drops the needle and it like sticks in her foot. They figured out how to prevent that person from getting HIV because they know the point of contact. Whereas when you're out in the real world living, people who encounter HIV sexually, they have no idea whenever they encounter it. Sometimes people have an idea. They can say like, oh, maybe it was that partner, but like they don't know the hour and the time. So first it was post-exposure prophylaxis. So if you say like day zero is the time of contact, so that's like Monday at noon, um, you have 72 hours to get enough antiretroviral drugs into your system to prevent HIV from being able to replicate itself to a high enough number to infect you and also to get into your cells and kind of like hide away in your genome and things like that. So basically this theory is just instead of starting at day zero, we go negative one, negative two, negative three. So when you encounter the drug, you already... Or whenever you encounter HIV, you already have enough of the drug in your system. To keep, so it's essentially like a birth control for HIV. That's exactly how I describe it. So um, that's how she goes. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the, uh, an important question to ask before that is, like, how does one contract HIV? So somebody contracts HIV through bodily having contact with bodily fluids that are from an HIV-infected person. So back in the day, whenever people didn't know what HIV was or how they got it, people used to get it through blood transfusions. Um, but today, it is transmitted mostly sexually or through IV drug use. Um, so, and there and there's like scales. So the the riskiest sex that somebody can have to inca- to acquire HIV is receiving anal sex. Being the top is like a less risky form of sex. Also, if you have currently STDs, um, the saying is like when there's a sore, there's a door. So if somebody has gonorrhea or uh, chlamydia, that increases their risk of acquiring HIV. Oh, that's really interesting Mm -hmm. slash scary. I didn't know that. Yeah. So how easy is it for someone to get HIV from someone? Like what's the difference between someone who like doesn't know they have HIV and someone who does know they have HIV? So that is like the like most important part of preventing HIV today. Somebody who doesn't know that they have HIV, 
they have like 10 to the 6 copies of the virus in their body. So give me um, a number for that. It's like in the millions. Um, so Kayla, like, it's like, what are the chances of someone who's like, like if someone is undetectable and like is and has their virus like all up on the meds, what are their chances of really spreading it on? So somebody who is adherent to medication and has an undetectable viral load, it's like less than 1% that they can pass it on to somebody else. Which is like coincidentally the same percentage of like someone who's on prep, like not, it's like 1%, 99%. Yeah. So yeah. a lot of people, I have some people that like they've been married to an HIV positive partner for like 20 years and this just changes everything for their relationship because if their risk of acquiring HIV is less than 1%, even if that person has a viral load and then their partner is undetectable, like they can have like carefree sex for the first time ever in their relationship. And it's really, really cool. Oh, that's gorgeous. I know. I know. Oh, I love that. Mm-hmm. What were you, so, what you were saying? So with the people living with HIV in the United States, like what's the percentages for like how many people like do know they have it versus don't? Yeah, right. 20% of the people in the United States that have HIV don't know that they have it. So the goals um, of like preventing HIV now are frequent testing. So then people know that they have it and to decrease their viral load because it's okay if they already have it. Like we can treat them and that's fine. But we, what we don't want is people like spreading it to other people at such high numbers. Right. Especially if somebody has, is a sex worker or they use IV drugs and they're sharing needles and things like that. Like one person can potentially infect a lot of people. So that brings up my question of like, where did she come from? Like, when did it start? Yeah. So this is something that people, um, are still currently researching and it's not like super well known but the theory for a long time was that what brought HIV to the United States was patient zero um, and he was a, fl- a French Canadian flight attendant that traveled the world and was considered a sexual athlete and basically had a sexual encounter with an African man in Europe and then was able to bring HIV back to the United States and then through like a lot of his sexual encounters so he was very much, like, villainized in the book, like, and the band played on, and um, he was, like, the CDC named him Patient Zero. Mm. Um, and then he eventually died in 1984 of complications from AIDS. Now they know that that is, like, really far from the truth. The first Patient Zero was somewhere around, like, 100 years ago. People, wow. Yeah. People were dying from um, AIDS-related illnesses, like... Uh, like fungal infections and different types of pneumonia that are like really specific to people that have AIDS. Um, what parts of the world? Like, uh, was that all in Africa? Yeah, Africa, and then also in the United States. Oh, and in really? France, in France, yeah, because there's a lot of like African tourism in France for some reason, like a lot of workers or something that with trade or something going on there. Um, so that's like where that flight attendant was able to get HIV for the first time. Uh, but yeah, there are recorded cases of people dying from like really specific opportunistic infections as early as like 1950. Wow. So really this, the person who like, we, who culturally we've identified as the person who was like the it guy, mm-hmm. it turns out actually wasn't the it guy. No. So now they describe him as like, he's certainly a part of the family tree of HIV. Like he's in the middle of the trees. He's not the top. He's not the person that brought it. So then for like the HIV that's going on now in the world, is that all, it's like, kind of like the Adam and Neve thing but like a weird comparison because it's like all the same HIV that was in like those people is like still the virus yeah that are essentially now. yeah so they can trace it back to um and there are epidemiologists I'm sure that like do this but yeah they can track mutations so like I know that we at the LGBT center we can figure out sort of like who gave you your HIV based on like what mutations you inherited from other people um 
it's it's helpful, but it's not like we don't we don't necessarily need to know that. But yeah, they can they can sort of like track this like map of who gave it to who and who did they get it from. So then, when it first started getting here, and and we had that boy like sexual athleting around with his what I'm sure would be a sex addiction and infecting all sorts of people yeah. with HIV. What was the treatment? like then versus like what we see now there wasn't really any so back then people didn't have any options and people were kind of scrambling i think they were just trying to keep people alive based on the infection so like they were treating the fungal infections or they were treating the pneumonia but like they had no idea how to treat viruses in that way we didn't even really have a way to replicate viruses in terms of like studying them until the early 90s whenever like the polymerase chain reaction was what's that um, that is a test. This is really interesting. So that is a test where you can take pieces of DNA and then just like replicate them really quickly so then you can get a large sample of a virus or a bacteria, whatever you're looking at. The man who invented that, his name is Kerry Mullis, and he was a chemist. And he won the Nobel Prize in like the early 90s <clears throat> for this test that he made. And he is actually like an HIV naysayer. Like he doesn't think HIV is real. <sighs> And it's really fascinating because he's, like, one of the smartest people that ever lived. But he, his theory is just that, like, we really jumped the gun with saying that HIV is the leading cause of AIDS without any research. And that whenever he started asking around, like, well, how do we know that, like, HIV is, the, is what causes AIDS? And maybe there's a passenger virus and maybe we're not studying it enough. And then he, like, went way down this rabbit hole of, like, conspiracy theories and things like that with HIV. So he's sort of, like... Is he still alive? Yeah. Yeah. And he's like, if you look at, he has a lot of like things on YouTube. I mean, he's not like crazy. He just like, will sit down and do some interviews and like, he's still like got his wits about him and stuff, but he just, I don't know. That's like kind of way off, yeah. but it's just, it's just interesting. No, it is interesting. So, but basically like, so when he invented that test and that's like, is that like how like the first medications were made like off of that, like off of being able to make a big bunch of HIV to figure out how to treat it? Like what were the first medicines like? Um, like what was like the first post prep the first post well like, like 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 the first like you know you're saying like for the nurse that got stuck with the needle oh, on the yeah, day yeah, yeah, yeah. And they were so doing there's like, like a... azt and then like the nucleoside so what whenever you want to treat hiv you need to like stop it from re replicating and there's like several ways that you can do that you can either like stop it from unzipping its dna stop its in d it's or its rna stopping the rna from getting into your dna um, so basically, we're talking like incredibly small things. So like the example that I like to use is like if a human cell is the size of a football field and then like a bacteria would be the size of a cow generally. And then a virus is usually like the size of a quarter on that field. So like they're very, very tiny. So to study them and to figure that out is like it's pretty intense. Um, yeah. So the first drugs were fine. Like they could reduce the viral load somewhat kind of, but they had like major toxicities. People who were taking them felt awful. Um, a lot of them just would, like, rather have HIV than, you know, deal with. And then they're taking, like, 12, 20 pills a day. And these are, like, the regimens of, like, the 80s and 90s. Yeah, yeah. So the big thing was whenever the integrase inhibitors came out. And this is, like, the big, big game changer. And this is the drug where one of the doctors I work with was explaining that, like, this is what was getting people off of their deathbeds. And that he had had some patients that, like had maxed out their credit cards and, like, gone on these trips because they thought, you know, they were going to die. And then they were like, oh, I'm, I'm still alive. <laughs> because it just, like, they can very quickly reduce the viral load from, like, millions to undetectable in just weeks. Um, and, and when that, did those happen? That was the first one was in, like, 2007. Oh. So mm -hmm. that's, like, really recent. Yeah. So that was, like, a big, big 
big kind of change and shift. So somebody who has HIV today, like if a healthy 18-year-old man or woman is diagnosed with HIV, they can start on one pill that they take once a day, as long as they don't have any mutations or anything like that, and they can expect to live like well into their 70s. And it's just, it's not the same that it used to be. We still don't want people to have it, obviously. And then now people that are living so much longer, like we never used to have people in their 70s who had HIV that had had it for so long. So now a lot of the research has shifted towards like how do elderly people, how do people age whenever they have HIV? Like because we do know that they have higher rates of um, cardiovascular disease and things like that, uh, higher rates of inflammation. So that's like a lot of the research that's going on at the LGBT Center now is looking at different drugs that um, reduce inflammation. That is so fascinating. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, hopefully it's like, with how far it's come in such a short amount of time, it's like hopefully they'll like sort out something even like more permanent and long lasting. Mm-hmm. Way more with that. We have, uh, so we're going to be right back more with Kayla in just okay. two seconds after the break. More on Getting Curious when we get back. I'm Allegra Ringo. And I'm Renee Colbert. And we host a podcast called Can I Pet Your Dog? Renee, can I tell you about a dog I met this week? Uh, I wish that you would. In turn, though, can I tell you about a dog hero? May I tell you about a dog breed in a segment I like to call Mutt Minute? (laughs) I would love that. Could we maybe talk about some dog tech? Could we have some cool guests on, like Lin-Manuel Miranda, Nicole Byer, and Ann Wheaton? I mean... Yeah, absolutely. I'm in. You're on board. What do you say we uh, we do all of this and put it into a podcast? Yeah, okay. You think? Perfect. Uh, should we call it like I don't know? Can I pet your dog? Sure. All right. Uh, what do you What do you say we put it on every Tuesday on Maximum Fun or on iTunes? Sounds the- good to me. <laughs> Meeting's over. Attention, Europe. This fall, Maximum Fun is bringing a bunch of your favorite podcasters to London. Catch Judge John Hodgman, International Waters, and Bullseye all recording live episodes at the London Podcast Festival. We'll have fan meetups and we'll be joined on stage by a glittering array of celebrity guests. The London Podcast Festival runs September 22nd through 26th, and you can buy your tickets right now. Just go to MaximumFun.org. Welcome back to Getting Curious. This is me, Jonathan Van Ness, in studio with Kayla McLaughlin, who we love so much. Hello. And she's getting us all up to snuff on all the HIV and AIDS research and things and statuses that we need to know about. So why is it? We were just talking about uh, some of the first treatments um, and then kind of where it's come now and how some of those things work. But why is HIV as a virus so hard to cure? That's a good question. One is that... It is super smart, and it's super tactile. Um, it's like the general patent of viruses. Uh, it can hide. It can mutate. It uh, does, like, the, vi- the the drugs that we have available today, like, they're super great, but also, like, if people aren't adherent to the medication, like, it can mutate and change. Basically, I think what you're asking, like, if, if a person is, like, totally healthy and we're treating them with, like, this the best that we got, like, why can't we just get rid of it? And the reason is because it can hide in people's genomes. So, like, you have it in many, many parts of your body, particularly the CD4 cells, uh, your, which are a part of your immune function cells, T cells. And that's how it infects you, and that's why it makes you sick. But it also lives in other cells in your body that don't have such a short half-life. So uh, even if you, like, can control it at the plasma levels and, like, you get, like, really high CD4 cell counts, the virus gets into your DNA and, tr- and like, hijacks it, basically, and makes it replicate itself. So even if we can lower your plasma levels 
it can still like come out of these places where it's like lingering and hiding. And those are called your reservoirs. So like basically like the way I understand it is like the pills and the medicine, it can like get to all of the like all of the copies floating around and like your fluids and stuff, but then in like the little like sneaky hiding places where in it the is. Nooks and crannies, yeah, like yeah. in the nooks and crannies, like we haven't figured out how to get the pills to those places. Right. And then I was reading this article that was saying that like they were trying a research was like they were trying to figure out a way to like flush out or like trigger those reservoirs, like mm-hmm. to tell them to like dump themselves out so that the pills could get to them. Yeah. Like is that a thing anymore? Yeah. That was like in, in like a in like a science book when I was in like tenth grade. So I know that was like a, <laughs> a minute ago, but like any progress on that whole thing? Um I was reading something about about that yesterday and yeah, they are they were doing something with like it's like a seizure medication somehow they were using to do that. I'm not I'm not really like savvy with, with that information at the moment, but I do know that um the CDC is like working on things like that to like try to try to get it out and then give people like a really intense antiretroviral therapy. So instead, of, anyone who has HIV usually takes three drugs, and if they would do this like flush out system of the of the virus, they would give them like five or six, mm. um, and really kind of do it would almost be like a chemotherapy, like a super high, super um, intense course of treatment with the hope that once they retest after a while, the virus would be completely gone. Which a few years ago when we had that thing with like those babies, mm-hmm. it, like in Mississippi, like it wasn't that the theory then? Yeah. So the Mississippi baby, which I think sounds like a Ashley Judd movie or something. <laughs> uh, the Mississippi baby was really interesting. So that was a woman who presented to the hospital in labor. She had not had any prenatal care at all. So they didn't know like anything about this woman. They had not done an HIV test. And in mother-to-child transmission in somebody who's HIV positive, if they have no treatment at all, that risk is, like, somewhere between, like, 15 and 45%. So, like, nothing you want to, like, play around with. If they give that mother treatment before the baby is born, then that reduces to less than 2%. The baby acquires HIV when they come through the vaginal canal and are exposed to the mother's blood. Right. Yeah. So it's interesting that the virus doesn't get in through the uterus, like while the baby's being built. Yeah, it's because women are so amazing. Yeah. <laughs> you guys are so powerful. I, know, I love that. I know. Like uh, a uterus of uterus of steel. I know. It's a great wall of China. Yeah. It's great. Um, yeah. So they went forward with the labor. Obviously, the baby had to come out. And I think her name was Dr. Hannah Gay. She like made the call at 30 hours of life of the infant to just start treating them with HIV medications. And at that point, did they know that the baby or that they, they knew that the mother had HIV, but they didn't know that the baby had HIV. So they gave the treatment at 30 hours. They tested the baby at 30 hours. They tested the baby at 31 hours. And they also tested the baby at day six, 11 and 19. The baby was HIV positive all of those days. Um, they continued the HIV treatment and then the baby was undetectable at day like I forget. It's okay, it's okay. But the baby was, like, undetectable. The baby was undetectable, uh, which was the goal. They hadn't, at this point, they weren't thinking that they were going to, like, cure this baby of HIV. The good stuff comes in whenever the baby was, like, 18 months old. From 18 months to 24 months, the mother, like, stopped coming in for the checkups and also stopped giving the baby any antiretroviral drugs. When the baby came back at 24 months, it was still undetectable. Um, so after not having had any pills, any pills. Yeah. So the doctors there theorized that maybe this was because they had reached the HIV with the medication before it was able to like hide in those places in the baby. And then the baby continued to be HIV negative for, I think like a year and a half. And then it was last year that the baby was actually does have a detectable viral load and they had to start 
um, ARV again. So in reality, like that baby was never negative. Like she was just like undetectable for an extended period of time because of such high amounts of like retrovirals. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't necessarily even like high amounts. It was just the regular amount that you would give a kid. Like they didn't, they weren't actively like trying to do a science experiment. Right. They just it just happened. Like happened. Yeah. And then wasn't they, didn't they attempt to do something similar on like a few other babies when that baby was still, they mm-hmm. thought negative and then, and so basically, like, but that didn't work on any of them. No. So that was like a, a little baby bit of a dead end. Yeah. Like a rent round. Yeah, yeah. And then there was like one person that I was reading about called the Berlin patient who is like the only person in the universe to have ever like been cured of HIV. Yeah. And how did that whole thing happen? So the Berlin patient, he is, um, so he was a an American from San Francisco living in Berlin, working in Berlin. He had been diagnosed with HIV in 1995. He was on antiretroviral therapy for eight years or something undetectable fine doing great and then he got cancer he had aml which is acute myeloid leukemia and that's a cancer of the blood whenever all your little baby blood cells they don't like grow up to do their real job they just kind of like stay immature and your blood's like not functioning right so you're like at risk for anemia and bleeding and you're like risk at risk for infections it's not good so he went through chemotherapy for leukemia, uh, and it was not successful. So the doctor that was working with him, he has, like, a very German name. I don't know if I can say it. Jero Huter? I don't know. <laughs> Mr. G- Dr. G.H. of Germany. <laughs> Dr. G.H. of Germany. Um, he had the idea that perhaps, so after a leukemia patient fails uh, chemotherapy, the next step is to do a bone marrow transplant. Blood cells are made by your bone marrow. So if you have this, like, cancerous uh, blood, the next thing would be, like, okay, if we can just, like, reset your bone marrow to, like, start making normal red blood cells. That's, like, a really grueling and intense process that uh, is not fun. So this doctor theorized, like, maybe I can cure his HIV while curing his cancer simultaneously. And that comes from there is a group of people uh, 16% of Caucasian Northern Europeans are immune to getting HIV. That Okay, so say that again. 16% of Northern Europeans that are Caucasian are immune to getting HIV. They cannot be infected with HIV. and That, that is a fierce mutation. Mm-hmm, yeah, and that is because uh, they are thought to be descendants of people who survived the bubonic plague. So HIV has to gain access to your CD4 cell count or to your CD4 cells. And it does that through the CCR5 receptor that's on the outside of the cell. So think of it like a slingshot, like the just the wooden part of a slingshot, like a Y. And then the GP120 is like the little stick that comes out of the HIV that like gets in there. Mm-hmm. When those two things combine, that causes like a flux of calcium in and out of the cell. And that's how HIV or anything else that needs to get in or out gets in. From that spike thing. Yeah, from the spike thing. Mm-hmm. So people who survived the bubonic plague, they thought that because it was such like a mass epidemic, it was like positive selection for like deleting that that receptor on the CD4 cells. Oh, so those people just don't even have anything for the spike to get into. They have like the they have like the little stick, but they don't have the Y. They have short little CCR5 receptors. So like the HIV is like floating around in space and like bumps up against the cell, but it, it can't get in. So it can't are, infect them. That's so fascinating. Mm-hmm. So, but those people are the people that can't get it now. Right. Yeah. They, they, like, they can be exposed to it as much as they want. Like, the HIV has no way of getting inside of their CD4 cells. And that's the only cell that they can infect. So, if it can't gain access, it can't replicate itself. And then it basically just... How does someone find out if they have that? 
I don't know. I guess they'd have to do like genetic testing or maybe, I don't know. Oh, yeah, but the Berlin patient. Yeah. So, so basically. The doctor decided that he was going to get bone marrow from somebody who has this CCR. It's called the Delta 32 mutation. So he's going to get bone marrow from somebody who has that, that mutation and hopefully, uh, you know, start making normal red blood cells, but then also start making uh, T cells that don't have the HIV receptor. And it was effective. So that was in 2007, I believe. He had two rounds of chemotherapy, failed, had his bone marrow transplant, and he remains HIV negative. With no pills. No pills. So why don't more people do that that are HIV positive? So that, when they tried to replicate that in other people, um, they almost died. Like, it didn't work. And he was sort of like a rare case. And they don't really even understand, like, why it worked so well with him. And with bone marrow transplants, that's, like, tricky business. Because there's a lot of things, like... There's something called, like, graft-versus-host disease. So, like, whenever you would get a hand transplant or something like that, like, it's possible that your body is like, I don't want this hand. Like, this isn't my material. And then it, like, causes an infection. The inverse can also happen in someone who's immunocompromised where, like, the donor tissue is stronger than you are. So it's like, oh, I don't want to be on this on this body. Um, so they think that possibly, like, that is what happened where he was so immunocompromised because he had gone through chemo. He was so sick. His immune system was, like, completely shot. That that was like a really rare window that the bone marrow was able to like just kind of. I was like, I don't want this sick over. body. I'm gonna like grow. Yeah. I was like, girl, I got you. Yeah, exactly. That's really fascinating. Yeah. So, but essentially, it's just like that was kind of like a big accident, like an accident. His his story is an accident that's like not feasible to apply to like. It other... like yeah, I think it kind of it is, but it's also like it's a bone marrow transplant. Like sucks. It's not. It's not fun to do that. It's a very grueling. Almost like it's very painful. Well, I I have clients who like I, one client in particular who I remember their mom had a a bone marrow transplant for cancer, mm-hmm. and I mean they were in the hospital for like two years getting yeah. transplants and stuff. And it, that person wasn't HIV positive, but I mean it it that treatment by itself like almost did her in several times. Yeah, and like people couldn't like really touch her, like be in the room if they were like it all had been sick. Like because yeah. like you couldn't have anyone's like weird germs around her. Yeah. Yeah, because they give them stuff to suppress their immune system to prevent that graft versus host or host versus graft response. PrEP was really this, like, gigantic game changer. And when we talk about HIV AIDS, uh, especially for me and my age group, because I've, I have known about it and all my friends know what it is. Mm-hmm. But for our listeners that don't know what it is, for someone like you who works in the population of, like, LGBT people day in and day out, like, how has it changed the face of HIV AIDS as you see it? Um, so PrEP is changing the way, so the biggest things whenever we're talking about HIV is we need to, one, um, increase testing. People need to know that they have HIV. We need to immediately get those people into treatment. PrEP is a way that we can prevent infections. So if like all of those things, if we're preventing infections, the people who have infections know that they have it, we reduce the risk of transmission, we reduce the epidemic, and then the numbers just start to go down over time. Um, So more people are living today with HIV than ever before because they're not dying. But the actual prevalence of HIV, like the the incidence of new cases, that's kind of remaining the same. Um, Even with like education. Even with PrEP. No, even with PrEP, it's so it's decreasing with PrEP. Okay, thank God. Yeah, yeah. PrEP is only five years old. Um, But it's not reaching. There are very vulnerable parts of our of the gay community. So like um, I read the statistic the other day that. One out of two African-American men who have sex with men will be told in their lifetime they have HIV. One out of two. Like, that's insane. And for Hispanics, it's one out of four. And for white uh, 
men who have sex with men, it's one out of 11. So PrEP is a really great way to just like, it's a biomedical intervention for an infectious disease because we can talk about condoms and we can talk about safe sex and we can talk about like sexual decision making. But at the end of the day, like we need actual medicine. Like we're not going to control the population with pregnancy, you know, without birth control. Right. This is just like the right decision Um, for, for some people and other people, maybe not. And that's great for them. Uh, yeah. So it's very simple. It's like you take it once a day, every day. Um, and you can take it as long as you want. It's very, it's an easy drug to take. It's almost like taking an aspirin. There are some risks and some side effects and stuff like that, but nothing too crazy. Could someone like stop taking it and then start again and it would be just as effective? So this is something that I always have to explain to people. If you stop taking it, like let's say I give someone three months supply at a time. They have to come back every three months for a checkup. I need to test them for HIV and I need to test them for like gonorrhea, chlamydia, syphilis, hepatitis C. I also need to test their kidney function. But the risk of someone starting and stopping, they're never going to like get resistant to it because they're not actually treating a virus. But what happens is if like let's say someone goes on vacation that's on PrEP and they forget to take it with them. They're gone for two weeks. It takes 10 days of them taking PrEP to have enough in their plasma to be protected where we can like take a sample of rectal tissue or um, anything else and like find it in, in the tissue. If you stop taking it day three, day four, day five, like that level in your plasma is declining. And then it's not 99% effective. It's like 86%, 72%, and it keeps going down. So if you would encounter HIV during that time and get HIV, and then like you get home from vacation and you start taking Truvada again, you would essentially be like showing HIV two of the drugs you would use to treat it without it being the whole package. So HIV would be like, oh, I know what this is and it's not going to work if you try to use this for treatment. And Truvada is like one of the like backbones of treatment for HIV today. So like it, so basically you're saying like you could be messing with resistance like yes. before you even get it. Yes. And there was one person who that has happened for. Is that the prep fail guy? Yeah. The that prep I read fail about? guy. What yeah. was that about girl? Yeah. Prep fail guy. It was so interesting. And this is why I say that like. That was all over the news. I know. And this is why I say like gay men are so like into health and they're so like hip with everything. I had so many patients asking me about that. And I was like, this is so amazing that you guys like know about this and you're like curious and like asking anyway so he was a man who like basically what happened to him was a very 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 unlucky scenario it was sort of like being struck by lightning he was exposed um to a very very like wild type hiv that he just inherited someone's resistance so this was like theorized whenever people whenever like researchers were first thinking about truvada as prep because what if the hiv that they're being exposed to what if that person is resistant to truvada and they can't use it for treatment. Um, it didn't seem to matter. No one got Truvada-resistant HIV in any of the studies. But this guy, um, unfortunately, did. So I guess... So what's a resistance? I think that's important to clear up. Because, like, I know what that is, but I feel like some people listening right now might not know, like, how like how would one acquire or develop an HIV-resistant strain? So you can inherit someone's resistance. So if you... so. This is kind of weird, but if you get your HIV from somebody who doesn't know that they have it and they've never had any treatment, that's almost like a better scenario because that HIV is basically like a virgin. It hasn't seen any medication. Right. It doesn't know how to outsmart it. Where if you would get HIV from somebody who's like started and stopped a bunch of regimens, their HIV has like changed and mutated so many times that it's like. um, Like super AIDS. Well, the thing is. Or like super scary AIDS. 
The thing is, whenever they mutate, they're not as strong. So, like, one of the doctors at my work explains it as, like, if you if it was, like, a soldier marching down the lines and, like, you, you're shooting it with, like, you know, whatever you have and that's the drugs, like, it can continue walking and infect you, but it's, like, hobbling. Right. So it's not, it's not quite as strong. It's a weaker version of the virus, but it's just difficult to treat. And then you don't get the, CD, the viral load down. And then that's what leads to, like, complications. So basically the person who experienced the prep fail contracted his HIV from someone who had, like, stopped and started taking Truvada in their time yeah, of having it. Essentially. And, yeah, and, and got a resistance to it. Yeah, and they know that he was taking it because they took his plasma as soon as they uh, – that he was detected. And he had enough Truvada in his system. They, like, got the pharmacy um, records and knew that he was picking it up on time uh, when he was supposed to. So, yeah, that was really unfortunate. But I tell everybody about that. Like, nothing is 100% in medicine. But, you know, there are people that take birth control that get pregnant. And I don't like to equate, like, pregnancy with HIV because they're two different things. But, you know, that's that's where sexual decision-making comes into play. Like, you always want to ask, like, I always like to talk to people about if their sexual behavior changes once they start PrEP. Because I have some people who come in that start saying, like, oh, my God, I've never been this promiscuous in my life, like, and for those people, it's like, okay, is this doing more harm than than good? Like, and I always encourage a dialogue. Like, I want people to be honest with me. Because I feel like sometimes people, I had one guy, like, I always ask, do you have sex with men? Do you have sex with women? Do you have sex with transgendered people or people that use IV drugs? How many partners have you had? And one guy was like, I just want to say the right answers. And I was like, what do you mean the right answers? Like, whatever is true is the right answer. I was reading about effectiveness of, of PrEP in women and mm-hmm. how, like, What's the deal with that? So it's not as readily, it's not as uh, bioavailable in vaginal tissue. So it's not as effective. So essentially, like the prep doesn't build up around the vagina the way it does in like right. the rest of your body. Yeah, right. So it has like very high levels in the rectum, um, and in the vagina, it's just not quite as high. So things that they're working on now are different ways to like make it more available there. So with so prep research now where it's going is like doing an injectable so then someone doesn't have to take a pill every day because people forget and like the number one thing is they need to take it at the same time every day. Right. Uh, so but with women, they're looking at like creams and like different like oh. things that you would actually insert. So then it's like going right to the tissue that it needs to be in as opposed to like waiting for your liver and kidney to like break it down and get it where it needs to. So. That is, we've gone a little over our 30 minutes, which I'm obsessed with, but no, not, no, girl, don't you apologize. This is an important subject. (laughs) But at this point in the podcast, I always say like, you know, when you go to yoga class and if you're like, I really wanted to do like, you know, side crow, but you just didn't hit it today. It's like, this (laughs) is the part in the podcast for you to say anything that you feel as, as a researcher and as a clinician and as someone who has your brain, like, what do people need to know? What have I missed? Like, what do you need to say in this podcast uh, so that we can feel complete, complete as possible? Okay. What they need to know is that uh, they should always feel free and open to have, like, a conversation with their provider about any of these topics, I, especially at the LGBT center. So somebody who is trans or homosexual or any of those things, like, there are providers out there that, like, are very, very hip and sensitive to your situation and uh, your needs. And I think that, like, I would really encourage them to, you know, seek that out. And also, I think anybody who is even slightly interested in taking PrEP uh, should talk to a provider about it as opposed to, like, friends and different things like that because I hear a lot of... Where could they find those providers? I would say at the LGBT Center. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's where I'm at. And there's also the AIDS Health Foundation. Um 
So basically, it's just like your local LGBT center is a good place to start. That's a great place to start. Yeah. If they don't have providers there, they can always refer you to one. Great. Mm -hmm. So I love that story. And then where can I... Is there any place where people could find you where you'd want to be found? Like, is there like, is there an Insta or is there a Twitter where we can find Kayla uh, talking about like all of the interesting HIV things or yeah. just the things in general? Yeah, I do. So my Instagram is my name, but like kind of abbreviated K-L-A McLaughlin, M-C-L-A-U-G-H-L-A-N. Fierce. And uh, Twitter. My Oh, yeah. It's Honor Best. That's a character I made up whenever I was in high school and I kind of like live. Oh, I her. love that. <laughs> so we'll definitely have links to those two, to those okay. things um, and whatever uh, thing that you're listening to this podcast on. And Kayla, I just can't thank you enough for coming in. And, thank and, you. And, I'm so happy to be here. I mean, it was like my pleasure. And it just it's so nice to uh, have a conversation about something that, that is not the easiest for everyone to have a conversation mm -hmm. about. And I'm very grateful that you're uh, coming in and sharing your genius with us. Thank you. So thank you so much. Um, thank you so much for listening to Getting Curious. Our podcast is produced by Christian Duaneus and Colin Anderson of MaximumFun.org. Our music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. And if you guys have any questions, comments, concerns, well, concerns, keep them to yourself because you know how I get on Twitter. I'm just kidding. But uh, <laughs> hashtag Getting Curious. Let me know what you guys think. If you're curious about something you want me to find out about, I would love to hear it. Um, hashtag that getting curious on Twitter. You can find me on Instagram at Gay of Thrones. You can find me on Twitter at, at the Gay of Thrones. You guys have had it with this Instagram Snapchat thing. I can't even. Can you guys? <laughs> I, who knew what that is? But uh, thank you so much for listening to Getting Curious, and we will see you next time. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.